The title of my message today is taken from one of those last verses we just read in 1 Corinthians 4, the scum of the world. I don't get to use that for a title of a message very often, um, but it is, uh, it's a great title. You know, when uh, every once in a while when we have a big group of people over to our house, uh, family or otherwise, I'll make a big pot of chili. Uh, I, I like to cook, some of you probably like to cook too, and uh, there's a big green pot that I use when I, I make chili for a large group of people. And it just so happens it's a great pot. It cooks everything really well. I love it. But uh, inevitably, it always gets a layer of kind of partially burned chili crusted on the bottom of the pot. You know what I mean? Um, and... Uh, so it's probably not that great of a pot. But, um, but you know, one of the things, you know, is cleaning up after you cook. And um, my wife often does that for me. But when it comes to that pot, uh, usually I'm the one tasked with scouring that crusty, burned layer at the bottom of this pot. And it's, it's hard. i got to work at it for a while and take some, a lot of soap. And, you know, i got to really put my muscle into it. And eventually, I'll get it all clean. And you know what I don't do? I don't take all of that stuff that I've scoured and scraped off the bottom of the pot and put it back in the chili leftovers. Um, I, maybe I could, but um, I throw it away. I get rid of it. And that word scum in the text is a reference to that which is scoured off, like off of pots. It's a reference to it. The word refuse that comes right after that is a reference to what had to be scraped off the bottom of shoes or in their day, of course, sandals. And, uh, of course, you can just imagine what kinds of things have to be scraped off the bottoms of shoes uh, in our day as well as in their day. Um, it's, a, it's a picture. It's a very graphic and stark picture that Paul is painting today. He's using a lot of irony, a lot of sarcasm in this appeal to the Corinthians. And I want you to see it all, feel it all today. We're coming to the end of this first section in 1 Corinthians, this section that began all the way back in chapter 1, verse 10, and concludes with one more sermon uh, next Lord's Day, Lord willing, at the end of chapter 4, it's the section on divisiveness in the Corinthian church, coming from their, their boasting. Now, I don't know if you've learned anything in the last five months that we've been studying the, the letter to the Corinthians, but these believers had a problem with pride. They were proud of everything. They were proud of their intellect. They were even proud of their teachers they were proud of the things that they ought to have been displaying a humble gratitude for. But they were boasting. They even saw the spiritual gifts of God as a ground of boasting, which we'll see later on in our studies. They would, you know, puff up their chest as it were and kind of strut around saying, do you know what I can do? Let me tell you what I can do. Let me tell you who I am. It was a big problem in their church. And where that kind of arrogance persists, 
disunity and division spread among the people of God. And of course, the reason that we are taking our time reviewing this letter and studying this letter and trying to learn from this letter is that we all battle these things too, don't we? We all battle pride. Pride is one of the most powerful sins that afflict men and women. It's listed as one of the three roots of worldliness over in 1 John 2, 15-17. All that's in the world, you know, the lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and pride of life. It's one of those three roots of worldliness. It was in the garden at the beginning. It was at Corinth in the 60s A.D. And it's still alive and well in Indianapolis in the 21st century, isn't it? And we need to see it for what it is and battle it with all our might. So it doesn't do at Heather Hills what it did at Corinth. And this is why Paul has addressed this over and over and over in these opening chapters from all kinds of different vantage points. Now as we're we're coming to Paul's final appeal in chapter 4, he explains to the Corinthians what he has done and why he has done it. We might call this first point, if you're taking notes, Paul's subtle strategy. Verses 6 and 7. His subtle strategy. Let's read those verses again. I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. For who sees anything different in you? What did you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Notice the little phrase right away there in verse 6. These things. I've applied these things. What are these things that he's applying? Well, of course, it's the truth. He's been teaching us all the way back from the beginning of the letter. He's given these illustrations. We've been going through them over... you remember chapter 3? There was this illustration about the farmer and a garden and, and, and a builder and, and this great building that was being built. He's written about being, in the early part of chapter 4, about being judgmental toward each other when, when it's God who is the judge. And all of this has been an illustration. It's been a, a subtle illustration. Paul says he's been applying these things to himself and Apollos. He's been using their names. But they're not the ones who need the instruction, are they? Notice why Paul is doing this. And I want to suggest three subpoints here, again, if you're taking notes. First of all, he's, he's taken on this strategy in these first four chapters for their benefit. Firstly, for their benefit. The apostle's heart comes through clear here, doesn't he? Although he's going, he's going to really blast him in a minute, okay? So just hang on. He's going to blast him. It's going to be one of his, the, the highest emotional, uh, intense appeals that he makes to them in just a moment in our text. But he starts off letting them know that this is for their good. 
for their benefit. And he's going to come back to this idea again in next week's text when he makes his final, final appeal to them and and, and reminds them that he is like their father and they are like his children. In other words, Paul loves them. He wants what's best for them. So the stinging rebuke that's about to come to them in a few verses and, and has been coming to them over and over in the first several chapters of this letter is for their benefit. It's for their good. A second reason why Paul is using himself and Apollos as an illustration to the Corinthians, secondly, is for their binding to the Scriptures. For their binding to the Scriptures. The Corinthians need to learn the meaning of this saying. Now, it's hard to see this in uh, the English translation there, but in verse um, 6, in the end of verse 6 there, where it says that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written. Right before that word not, in the original language, there's a little article there, and that article usually signals a quotation or an expression. And so most scholars think that this idea of not going beyond what is written is a saying or a uh, a cliche that Paul used regularly with the Corinthians, they've heard him say this. So, so when he writes this, it would be something that the congregation would recognize. We're like, oh, here he goes again. You know, we've heard this before. Remember what we always say. Don't go beyond what is written. That's the idea here. We talk about this concept in our leadership training here at Heather Hills, that whenever we handle the Scriptures, we want to try to stay on the line of Scripture. So if you imagine the line of Scripture, the meaning of Scripture as a horizontal line right across the horizon in front of you, then we don't want to go above the line where we add things to Scripture, and we don't want to go below the line where we subtract things from Scripture. We want to stay on the line, saying no more and no less than God has said in his word to us. And that takes work. And that takes determination to, to, to not let ourselves and our, and our own opinions or, or the outside worldly wisdom like the Corinthians were doing to, to, to drip down into our teaching of God's word. Paul wants the Corinthians to be bound to the Scriptures. It's a major part of the solution to their problems. And six times in this letter so far, he has taken them back by direct quotation to the Old Testament to remind them of things that are written. And we need to be cognizant of this as well. We need to understand that we need to be bound to the Scriptures just as the Corinthians um, needed to be. And then thirdly, Paul wants uh, the Corinthians to pick up, and the way he's writing, and the, why, the reason he's using he and Apollos' illustration, he, he's writing all this so that they won't take pride in one person over another. So if they've learned the lesson that Paul has been applying to them for all these chapters... It should be really obvious. There shouldn't be any cliques in the church. There shouldn't be any divisions running through the church. 
If a, if a congregation continues to focus on individuals and puffing up leaders um, wrongly, then it's clear they're not learning the lesson that Paul wants them to learn. Now, it's right to honor leaders. In, in effect, what is happening with Pastor Trey and his family today is a sense of honor. Now, we're being helped in honoring him through a, a very wonderful grant that we were able to obtain. But to, the opportunity to go away and rest and be refreshed and to wipe the slate clean and get new, fresh visions and ideas uh, as he studies God's Word, that is uh, a way of honoring him for his very long years of faithfulness and service and enduring hardship. And, and it's right to honor leaders. But there's a, there's a difference between godly respect for our leaders and ungodly exaltation, uh, which you can see, well, you can see all over Indianapolis if you drive around, because sometimes, you know, uh, some of these leaders in, in churches, uh, pictures are right up on the bulletin boards or the, you know, the billboards as you drive around town. Uh, it's all about individuals. It's all about personalities. And that is what's happening in Corinth. And Paul wants them to learn their lesson. Now, of course, the Bible, whether it's in Galatians 6, uh, if you receive instruction in the Word, you should share good things with your instructor. 1 Thessalonians 5, you should respect those who work hard among you, who are over you in the Lord and who admonish you. Uh, 1 Timothy 5, the elders who direct the affairs of the church are worthy of, of double honor, especially those who wor whose work is preaching and teaching. This is, this is the proper teaching of Scripture. It's right to honor those who are faithful and lead. But there is a distinction here between loving gratitude. That's what we want to send the ocean's way today. Loving gratitude. There's a difference between that and illegitimate loyalty. Loyalty that, that short circuits our loyalty to Jesus Christ as the head of the church. And when that is fueled with pride and arrogance, like it was in the Corinthian church, everything can fall apart. Now look down at verse 7. And let's take, just take a quick moment here, because he further explains his comments here by asking three tough questions, but important questions. Look at them. The first one, what makes you different from anyone else? Now, if I just ask that question to you without any context, right? Uh, what makes you different from anyone else? Or uh, um, as the language there is, who sees anything different in you? Um, we would probably all say, well, God does. I, I, I mean, he, he made us different, right? I mean, everybody's got different fingerprints and, and different DNA. And, and we all have different personalities and... Um, and our own set of experiences. And of course, that's true, right? On one level, that's true. And we tell our children this uh, from the time they're very little in books and TV shows and that they're very special, different from everyone else. I'm going to get into trouble for this. Friends, here's the truth. The truth is, you're not as special as you think you are. I'm going to get in trouble with this. The truth is, we all 
have a tendency to think that we're the center of our own universe. Everything revolves around us. It's especially true when we are babies. Ever notice that? But you know what? Many adults haven't stopped embracing that philosophy either. I've got news for you. If you weren't here tomorrow, the world would not stop. Let me use myself as an example. Suppose I keeled over this afternoon and died. I know, horrible. Went to heaven. Would I be missed? I'm hoping by a few of you. Would my funeral be filled with loving expressions? Sure. Would everybody take off work tomorrow to commemorate my death? Probably not. In fact, I'm willing to speculate that there might even be a church service here next Sunday. Even if I was gone. Can you believe it? No one is superior to anyone else. And in fact, that's the meaning of this word where, where he says different. It's the, different of, it's the idea of different through superiority. It's the idea of thinking yourself better than anyone else. We're all made in God's image. We're all sinners. We all need redemption through Christ. And if you're here this morning and you've never found such salvation... You've never experienced forgiveness of your sins. You've never had hope for eternal life and purpose in living beyond yourself. Let me tell you, friend, you can know salvation even this day. And if you stay afterward, after this service concludes, and just come and talk to one of us pastors or talk to a Christian sitting near you, or come up and visit our prayer uh, cubicle over here in the corner, the front left of the building, where a counselor can talk to you and open the Bible and pray with you. We can help you find how, from the Scriptures, how you can start becoming a follower of Jesus Christ. But Paul's not finished. Not nearly. That was just the first question. What do you have that you didn't receive? What do you have that you didn't receive. You've got a good pastor or good teachers. In this case, Paul and Apollos. Pretty good stuff. So you're going to go out and tell people, hey, Paul is our pastor. Nah, 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 nah. And, and, and he did this and he did that. And he went there and he spoke at that place. What's the big deal about that? God gave him to you. You've got good parents, perhaps. They brought you up well. Was not that a gift from God? You live in a country. We call it the land of the free, the home of the brave. Is that not a gift from God? What about spiritual gifts? God gave us redemption. He gave us forgiveness. He gave us hope. He gave us a purpose. He gave us a future. He gave us everything. So how could we ever look in condemnation down our noses at our unsaved friends in all of their stupidity and say, look at these bad, bad people. I'm glad I'm not like 
them. I'm in church today. I may even go to ABF class after church. I'm a good person. Well, friends, tell me one thing this morning that any of you have that you didn't receive. What's Paul's point? Be grateful. Don't be proud. Don't tell people how great you are. Tell them how blessed you are by God, by your heavenly Father. Third question, if you received it, why would you ever boast as though you did not? That makes sense, doesn't it? That follows. And friends, it's, it's when we come to the cross that we find out who we really are. Who do you think you are? Do you remember the old song? Not have I gotten, but what I received. Grace hath bestowed it, since I have believed. Boasting, excluded, pride, I abase. Why? I'm only a sinner. Say it. Saved by grace. Saved by grace. That's who we really are. And that should turn our boasting into deep humility. But it didn't for the Corinthians. And so Paul ramps up his rebuke and launches into this next section that I'll move quickly through that I've entitled Paul's Serious Sarcasm, verses 8 through 13. His serious sarcasm. It's serious because he's got a point he's trying to make, but it is so sarcastic. Listen to these verses again. Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. Without us, you have become kings. And would that you did reign so that we might share the rule with you. For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we've become a spectacle to the world and to angels and to men. We are fools, but for Christ's sake. But you, you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. To the present hour, we hunger and thirst we are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless and we labor working with our own hands when reviled we bless when persecuted we endure when slandered we entreat we have become and are still like the scum of the world like the refuse of all things Three short points here, and then we'll close. This is dripping with sarcasm all the way through it. Paul, I think, first of all, says, look at you. Then look at us. And then finally, look at Christ. Look at you. He uses the word already twice in verse 8. Already. You've arrived. You've made it. 
Well done. And you did it without us. Kudos. Already you have all you want. You're rich. You're kings. Well, at least you should be. If you were reigning, we want to reign with you. You're wise in Christ. You're strong. You're held in honor. What's his message to the Corinthians? Dripping out of his mouth with irony. Congratulations, guys! You made it! You've, do- you've done what, what us apostles never were able to do. You got it all! Well done! Congratulations! Look at us. Like men sentenced to death. A spectacle. That word spectacle is the word in the Greek teatro, theater. It's a reference to the Colosseum where the games were held, where people were executed. We're like men sentenced to death. We're going to the theater. We are fools. We are weak. We are held in disrepute. We are hungry and thirsty, poorly dressed, buffeted, homeless. We have to work with our own hands. We're reviled. We're persecuted. We're slandered. We're the scum. We're the refuse. Now, if you haven't noticed, there's a little bit of a contrast here between the Corinthians and the apostles. Let me read, um, and you can turn with me if you want, read uh, over to Philippians chapter 3. Very familiar passage to another church. Paul uses similar language here. Let me read verse 7. Philippians 3, 7. But whatever gain I had, and right before this, of course, Paul has listed all of his gain. And it's pretty good. Pretty good. Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss. Again, for Christ's sake. You hear that? He said that in Corinthians too. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake I have suffered the loss, again, third time, of all things. And count them as rubbish, scum, refuse, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law. That's the Corinthians' problem. They think they're just fine. They've made it. They know everything they need to know. They're proud. But that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and may share His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death. I don't remember reading that about the Corinthians. But I do remember reading that about the apostles. What have the Corinthians done wrong? They're living in worldly wisdom. We've seen this all the way from the first chapter. They're following the wisdom of the world and not the foolishness 
of Christ found in Christ crucified, the preaching of the cross. They're living in worldly wisdom, not the way of Christ, and the way of Christ is the way of the cross. It is the way of self-denial. It is the way of loving your enemies. It is the way of humility, and it's found in every one of those statements made about the apostles. Thirdly, look at Christ. There's not a lot about Christ in this passage from one perspective. I think it mentions his name maybe twice in these verses. But they're living this way. The apostles are living this way for Christ's sake. We are fools for Christ's sake. They're doing it for him. Interestingly, the way that Paul describes the apostles here, if you just go back and read those, the things that I just said, look at us. Look at, look at the way that Paul describes the apostles. The way that he describes the apostles is the same way that Christ is described in the Gospels and elsewhere in the New Testament. Let me read you a couple of passages. Just see if you think they sound similar in the same, same theme, same heading. 1 Peter chapter 2. Again, probably familiar verses for most of you. 1 Peter chapter 2, uh, verse 21 and 20 to 23. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered... He did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. This is the way Christ lived. It's also the way he taught his disciples how to live. Turn back to Luke chapter 6 for just a moment. I want to read an extended section and just listen again to the tone that Jesus teaches his disciples. Luke chapter 6 verse 22. Listen to this. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy. For behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you've received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. To one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you. And from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, so do to them. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? Even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for He is kind 
to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. As you go back and reread those words in verses 8 through 13, you see the heart of Christ. And you see the heart of what it makes to be a disciple. I'm going to ask the praise team to come on up and uh, return for our final song. As they're coming, think with me about the implications that come out of these verses. And again, I hope in your ABF classes today, you come up with ten more of these. But let me give you six to consider from this passage this morning. Here's the first. Stay on the line of Scripture. We get in trouble like the Corinthians did when we add to Scripture, when we add worldly wisdom to Scripture, or when we take away from Scripture. Stay on the line of Scripture. Second, remember you have been given everything you have. Every time that little bit of arrogance kind of wells up in your soul, Remember, you have been given everything you have. No, I didn't. I worked for it. It's mine. Where'd you get the job? I got it. Where'd you get the strength to do your job? Where'd you get the intellect to understand your job? Where'd you get the breath to keep living to accomplish your job? Everything you've received has been given to you. Third, at the foot of the cross, the ground is level. Don't have a superiority complex. Don't think you're better than anyone else. Number four, imitate Christ, not worldly wisdom. Live your life for Christ's sake, not to heap up honor on yourself. Number five, as Jesus taught his disciples, here's the way to live. Take up your cross Deny yourself and follow him. Take up your cross. There's suffering involved in following Christ. Deny yourself. Say no. Live for others. Live for Christ, not yourself. Follow him. Last, worship your faithful God, your giver of life and breath and everything else. You know, um, sometimes when we get to passages like this, and there are a lot of passages like this in the Bible, you think, well, living the Christian life is a real downer. Suffer, 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 suffer. Endure, 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 endure. Did you notice how these verses were characterized, all the different ones that I read? With joy. With joy. We suffer, but we're not glum about it. We're persecuted. But we're, we're not, you know, we don't like persecution, but, but we have a sense in our spirit, we, we're at peace with God. We're okay. We're safe. The people doing the persecuting are the ones who aren't safe. They're the ones who need our love. They're the ones who need our mercy. They're the ones who need our Christ. So worship your faithful God. Yes, the Christian life involves A cross. Take up your cross. Deny yourself. It is not all roses, but it is all joy. And it will be forevermore when you're rewarded in heaven. Great is your reward in heaven if you live in such a way.